Thanks for joining us today as you listen to a portion of a message recorded at Vine Life Church in Boulder, Colorado. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can visit us online at www.vinelife.com. Talking about Acts, and maybe a good way to start with this is to pray. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And Lord, we know that you meet us where we're real, not where we're pretending to be, not where we're imagining to be, not where we're hoping to be. But Lord, you meet us where we really are. And we ask today that you would meet us, that your words would resonate with us in the very places that we need them the most, that when we leave here today, we'll have illumination, we'll have better understanding, clarity, and we'll have grown deeper in our relationship with you. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, we've been in Acts for a while. In fact, I think we've been studying in Acts for about eight weeks. Um, And we've kind of worked our way up through the first five chapters of Acts. And I thought, because I think this way, that it might be a good time to kind of go back and start from the beginning, not to say everything again, but, but rather just to remind us where we've been. The book of Acts is actually based on a prophetic word that was released by Jesus. And if you open your Bibles to Matthew 10, the 10th chapter of Matthew, what you will find there is what is known as the missionary discourse. There's five discourses in the book of Matthew. Um, And this is one of them. So when you look at this uh, discourse back then, well, what we see is this. Um, First of all, we see Jesus anointing his disciples with power. Right off the bat in the first verse, it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Jesus establishes the evangelical priority. He says, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans, but go to the lost people of Israel first. They're God's chosen people. And go to them first that they might hear and receive the good news. And then he warns them. He says this in uh, verse 16. He says, behold... I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The first six chapters of the book of Acts, really the first seven, are the manifestation of exactly what Jesus promised was going to happen. 
He didn't predict it. He promised it because he knew it. He'd already been there. So we've been in Acts for a while, and in talking about these first five chapters, today my topic is chapter 6, in talking about these first five chapters, um, I think there's some things that we've learned. Page 2. Uh, the first thing that we learned is that the book of Acts is all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. Jesus um, gives authority. Jesus intervenes when, when there's problems. Jesus calls his disciples out into confrontation with the church, the temple of the day, if you will. When things seem lost, there he is. There he is. And we see his power overcoming everything. Secondly, the first seven chapters in, in Acts are about transition. This is a world that is in transition. It's a moving away from the old temple system into the new kingdom system. And we all know that transition is hard. Change is something that we can contend with more than we probably should. And the third thing is that Jesus invites us into his story. Uh, so by that, what I mean is this. In chapter 3, a man who's lame is healed. Um, he's healed by Jesus. It's Jesus who heals. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's Jesus who heals. So this man is healed, and this raises a real problem. And the problem that it raises is this. If we back up to the Gospel of John, we get a picture of a private conversation that the leaders of the temple system were talking about. And they were discussing Jesus, and it's in John 11th chapter, verses 45 through 50. And I'm just going to jump to 48, because Jesus is doing these miracles, and the chief priests and the Pharisees are talking, and they say this. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So these guys were gunning for Jesus kind of from the get-go. You see what I mean? That's what they were going to do. This goes on to say, and they planned to put him to death. So, all of a sudden, we come into this place in Acts in the third chapter where this man is healed, sort of like an unauthorized healing, you know? And so the temple leaders summon Peter and John, and they say, what's up with this? And they say, well, if you mean what's up with this, this is the fact that Jesus, who you killed, healed this man in his name. Wow. So here, these guys had thought they'd already taken care of Jesus. 
They'd bumped him off the rails. Sent him off. He's gone. He'll fade into the past, just like those that came before him. And here's these crazy people standing in front of them, telling them, this Jesus, whom you killed, healed this man. Ooh, what a nightmare. And it was worse because the guy was standing right there. He was a 40-year-old man. He wasn't from Cleveland. They all knew this guy. They knew him as a man who could not walk, and there he was standing there. He walked into the room, and ultimately he walked out of the room. So what could they do? What could they do? Well, what they did is they said this, okay, fine, but you're not to teach or to preach in the name of Jesus. Well, that didn't work very well. That didn't work well at all because now these two guys are emboldened and they go back to all their friends. Remember, in the first three, things are happening. People are being added to their number, thousands of them. They're all showing up and they're full of the Holy Spirit. And they go back and now what do they do? They pray and they say, and now, Lord, this is in Acts uh, 429, I think it is. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch your hand out to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know what it makes me think of? Years ago, I saw a television interview, a lot of years ago, with a guy who uh, played for the Dallas Cowboys. His name was Leroy Jordan. Oh, he's a Dallas fan here. Uh, his name was Leroy Jordan, and he was talking to this commentator, and he said this. He said, I play better when there's blood on my jersey, preferably my own. You want to play that guy? I don't want to play that guy. And that's what these people were saying. They were saying, thank you for the boldness, Lord. Keep it up. Do more of it, Lord. Show the signs and wonders. These people didn't intimidate us. They didn't silence us at all. Because when a person with an experience encounters a person with an argument, the experience will always win out. Amen. Right? The disciples, these leaders, us here today, we can't unsee what we've seen. We can't unknow what we've known. And so they said to these leaders, they said, whether we should stop doing this or not is, is something that's determined by God, not by you guys. They were more determined. And that is an underlying truth of our faith. That the more we are persecuted, the more we are criticized, the more we're empowered to advance this kingdom. History is replete with stories like that. Well, it didn't work. And so by chapter 5, they raise the stakes. This time, they don't summon them. They arrest them. So now they're arrested. They're in jail. And miraculously, here's where Jesus shows up. Miraculously, they're not in jail. They're not in jail. The jail's locked. Guards are in the doors. They go to bring them in to talk to the head people. And they're not there. Where are they? They're in the temple teaching Jesus, preaching 
Jesus. Well, by now, the Pharisees are losing the war of public opinion. This is not good. So they don't want to go arrest these people again. They kind of go more gently and say, could you come and, and talk with us? And so they, they show up. And this is the second confrontation. But this time, they've been arrested. They've been jailed. And then they've been beaten. Beaten. I mean, how would you feel if the eldership asked you to come in and, and we beat you? You know, we don't do that, by the way. But, but, you know, these are their leaders, and they were beaten. And, of course, they were humbled, and they gave up, and they said, well, Jesus isn't real, right? No, no, no. They didn't say that at all. In four, chapter 4, verse 31, it says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. We're not in an environment where anyone can conquer Jesus. We're not in a place where anyone can say, be silent. We're not in a place where anyone can say, this isn't true. This is a myth. This is a fiction. Jesus has overcome the world. It's the very world we live in. He's overcome it, and he's overcome it for us. We sang earlier today that we were created by God. We were created for God. And we'll be unfulfilled until we're in communion with God. And that is the path we're on. And Jesus is not going to let anything interfere with that path. The only thing that can change our journey on that path is us. It's when we decide to take and re-empower an enemy that he defeated. It's when we allow that enemy to have authority over us. That's the only time that can happen. So the church is on the move. People are being added to their number every day. There's thousands. And, you know, imagine, when you think of thousands, imagine a thousand people showed up here tomorrow and said, what should I do? <sighs> wow. I mean, these guys had to be totally overwhelmed by this, this whole experience, the Holy Spirit moving in all these people. So... From the outside, we've got the uh, uh, temple system pressing on them, trying to silence them, trying to get them to stop doing what they're doing. But meantime, back at the ranch in chapter 5, we find there's a problem. Up till chapter 5, what we read about this early church, this early community, it's like the Garden of Eden. They're of one accord. They eat together. They learn together. They pray together. And they meet each other's needs. All of these things happen. Sounds pretty good. But in chapter 5, we find the snake in the garden. Actually, we find two snakes in the garden. So these two snakes rise up, Ananias and Sapphira, and they produce the first internal threat to the church. 
And the reason I'm saying that is this. What they did is they, for whatever reason, came and brought a lie. And the lie was one of hypocrisy. You know, um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, Luke made the point that hypocrite is a Greek word that means actor. That's what it actually means. And hypocrisy is when we're acting, when what's within us and who we are within us does not align with what's outside of us and what we're doing and showing and demonstrating to others as we live out our life. Now, the people of the day, they knew a lot about hypocrisy. Um, they had the Pharisees right in front of them. They could see the benefits if you could be a good hypocrite, why you'd have prestige and status, you'd have power, you may have wealth. Hypocrisy seemed to work pretty well for the hypocrites. And now, here was this possibility of that entering into the family of God. So, Peter sees this, the Holy Spirit confronts this, Ananias and Sapphira arrive at a drastic conclusion. And everybody looks at this and goes, whoa, whoa. Because it wasn't about punishing Ananias and Sapphira. It was about keeping the church clean, about keeping it clear from this kind of a threat that a lie, that the spirit of a lie could enter in and spread throughout the entire church. And that brings us to chapter 6. Now, chapter 6 is really about trouble in the family. In fact, this talk, I titled it Family Troubles. What we see in the first half, the first seven verses of chapter 6, is we see family troubles. And it's not just a family, it's a blended family. It's a blended family. And so one part of this family uh, is made up of what Scripture calls Hellenist Jews. And the other part of this family is what the Scripture calls Hebrew Jews. Now, for a little backstory, what this is about is this. From the time of the destruction of Israel and Judah, the Jewish population in the world was scattered everywhere. There were Jews living everywhere. And in that culture, in the first century, there was a desire for people when they died to come back to Jerusalem so they could die there and be buried there, the city of David in the city of the great king. So there were a lot of people coming back, and these people had been gone for generations. These weren't folks that just went on a three-month trip. They were gone for generations. And when they came back, they brought back their culture, their values, their expectations, their language. It was all, all different. Now, I grew up in a blended family, and uh, my father died when I was eight, and my mother remarried when I was 15, and she married a man who had five children. So suddenly, my life in the blended family went from being the center of all attention as the only kid, which has its ups and downs, but still felt pretty good, to being one of six. And what's worse, the other five 
my brothers and sisters had different customs. They had different values. They had different practices. And I'm trying to figure out, as everybody else is, how to navigate this. And, and the way it felt to me, it's like the story about this uh, elderly gentleman, and his wife wanted him to go to the store and get some milk. And he didn't really want to go, but she wanted him to go. And so uh, he got in his car and headed down the interstate and went to the store to get the milk. A while later, she's watching TV, and here's a story in the news about a car going the wrong way down the interstate. That's the one her husband's on. So she calls him up on the cell phone. He answers the phone. She says, honey, there's a car coming down this interstate going the wrong way. He said, a car? There's hundreds of them. (laughs) Well, that's the way it felt in the blended family. There's hundreds of them, and they're all... They're all different, okay? So Luke writing to us in chapter 6, or he's writing to Theophilus actually, in chapter 6 says this, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. Hellenist Jews. So what's up with the Hellenist Jews? Well, number one, they're different. Number two, they're older, and number three, they're burdensome. We talked about their difference, but these are all people that have moved back to die. They're not teenagers. There's a whole bunch of them. And what's worse is this. You ladies, for some reason, tend to outlive us guys. Eighty percent of all the residents in nursing homes in the United States are women. We don't make the trip. And this isn't a new thing. This has been going on from the very get-go. So what happened to them is you had these older people all moving back to Jerusalem. The guy dies, and now you got all these widows. You got all, who's going to take care of these widows? Their families are off in Mesopotamia or wherever. Who's going to take care of them? I'll tell you who, the Hebrew Jews. They're the ones that are going to get to take this burden for these people that are different, and they're old and we don't even understand them because we don't speak the same language. So you can see how conflict would arise in the church. But there's a bigger conflict than that. You see, when you think about the conflict as it's presented here in Scripture, it was about the distribution of uh, food to these Hellenist widows. Well, common sense would tell any of us, although I admit we've read the book, Okay, Common sense would tell us that Moses already figured out how to deal with this in his day, and what he did is he delegated authority. He appointed judges. So what did the apostles do? They turned to their broad community. They called them all together, the thousands, and they said, Look, we want you to pick from among your community, seven men, maybe one for each day of the week or something, seven men to oversee the distribution of this food. And so what they had is they had a delegation, and then he said, and tell us who they are, and we'll anoint them, we'll bless them, we'll commission them, we'll release the authority for them to do that. So they named seven. I'm not going to read them off. Three of them I can't even pronounce, so uh, I don't have to demonstrate that. Uh, And the apostles laid hands on them, and they took over that. 
delegated authority. But there was a deeper thing than this, a much bigger thing than this. And the apostles, when they answered the people, they called it out in a very open and frank way. And they did that on page four. They did that in Acts 6, verse 2. And they said this, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So while they solved the problem through delegation, they began to confront the bigger problem. And the bigger problem is this. It's the tension of choice. Choice. See, we're created differently than anything on this planet. And the differentness that we have is that we are not subject to instinct. Where we live, how we dress, how we travel, we can leave the planet, we can even reject God. We're free. But with that freedom comes the tension of choice. See, we'd all like to make choices based on 100% information, right? But that's impossible because to have 100% information, you'd have to know every possible outcome of all the different choices that we have. And we can't know that. We can't know that. And for these people, they don't, they don't have the law. They're past the law. They're past the temple system. They have the spirit. So how do they make their choice? How do they figure out what is the right thing? Well, I hope it's the same way we all do it. And that is that we look to the Lord. We look to the Lord. Think about the distractions that we have in the world of today. I mean, wow. It's almost overwhelming. In fact, it is overwhelming, isn't it? Here we sit. we got the kid in Korea with the rockets. We don't know what the Russians did to our election. Uh, then there's politics. Then there's religion. Then there's gender issues. Then there's, and then there's the Denver Broncos and the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Kansas City Chiefs and those Cowboys, wherever you were. Wow. How do we ever figure out where Jesus is leading us? How do we ever cut through the clutter? You know, sometimes I wish, and, and I, I enjoy football, but sometimes I wish that all of us could express as much enthusiasm for our kingdom walk as we do the game on Sunday afternoon. It would be a different world, wouldn't it? It would be. But that clutter can come, and it can overwhelm us, and now we're in a trap where we have too much information, and we have too much emotional vulnerability. You see, I don't think there's a, a, an emotion... Well, one of the most... Let me say it this way. One of the most powerful emotions we have is righteous indignation. That's when we see ourselves or somebody else has been treated unfairly. They've been done dirty. They've been oppressed. They've been discriminated against. Whatever it is, and we pick up that offense, and we have tremendous energy. And what we allow is we allow our circumstances to overcome our calling. That's what we do. And so now we lose sight of where Jesus is at. And that's one of the real big lessons of the book of Acts. And that is that Jesus is at the center of our life. 
If we don't have Jesus at the center, if we bump him out of the way and put ourselves in the center of our life, then now what we're saying to Jesus is, no, I want you to enter into my story. I need you to enter into my story. I need you to solve my financial problem. I need you to solve my health problem. I need, I need, I need. Rather than asking the question, Lord, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Show me what you're doing. Help me discern what you're doing so that I can see how to align with that and move in concert with you, move in partnership with you towards the end that you have defined in this situation. Because you know what's best. You know what's best. So for the apostles, here they have this issue with the serving of the tables and the the um, Pharisees picking on them, uh, and the snakes in the garden, and all of these things. So what do they do? Well, what they do is they recalibrate. They didn't think that serving widows was beneath them or anything else. They were asking, Lord, what is it that we should do? And to know that, have you ever been lost? Have you ever just been lost? One time I got lost. I was hunting. And I'd gone over this ridge and down this ridge, and uh, it was getting late in the day, and I needed to get back up that ridge and be able to kind of see where I'd come from. And this fog was rolling in, and I'm steaming up this mountain as fast as I can, puffing like an old locomotive and all of this. And I get to the top about 20 seconds before the fog rolls in, and I look out across the countryside, and I haven't seen any of this before. I have no clue where I am. None. And I'm thinking, this is like Rip Van Winkle or something. You know, how did, I, how did this happen? And I did probably what, what you've done if you've been lost, and I retraced my steps mentally, and I said, all right, where did I start this morning? Where did I start? How did I travel? And what were the turns I made along the way? That's what the apostles did. They went back to Matthew 10. And they said, what did we set out to do? What was our commission? What does it say? It says, heal the sick, raise the dead. That's what we're about here. We're called to bring the good news. Jesus says in the first chapter of Acts, you're to be my witnesses. You're to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea and to the ends of the world. And that's the way Acts unfolds, the first seven chapters of Jerusalem. Eight, nine, or seven and eight are Judea and Samaria, and nine through 28 are the rest of the world. So they went back to their roots to try and discern what they should be doing. And they concluded it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the first seven books, first seven chapters of the book of Acts can kind of be summed up in terms of what does it mean for us individually, personally, and what does it mean for us as a community, the community of Vine Life? On a personal level, as I said, to walk in a kingdom way, to be people of the kingdom, 
We have to keep Jesus at the center. We are free from instinct, and we do have to make decisions. You know, every day we face a lot of decisions. Um, Guys here might relate to this. Uh, Sometimes I have to clean up my workbench. Now, I hate this, okay? Because it may look like I'm just putting things away, but it's it's hundreds of decisions. I have to decide all these things. Do I keep it? Do I throw it away? If I keep it, where do I put it? If I put it there, will I remember where it is? Do I need it? I mean, it's an agony of decisions. And every one of us goes through this to some degree or another every day. But what we don't want is to miss the important decisions. How sad it would be to pour out a lot of effort and a lot of energy climbing up this ladder against a wall to get to the top and look out and see it's the wrong wall. That isn't the wall Jesus had us to climb. How would you like to spend 20, 30, 40, 50 years doing something like that only to discover that because we didn't discern at the front end, because we didn't go back to our roots, because we didn't look at what God created us to be, we spent all this time and effort and we climbed the wrong wall. That'd be a lot of work for nothing, wouldn't it? We only have so much capacity. Anybody here bored? I mean, do you ever just have time and you just do nothing? Just like, nothing? Anybody? Well, me neither. Mark, you do? Well, we watch the Broncos. <laughs> See, we filled our lives with a lot of things. And because we filled our lives with a lot of things, we parcel out our capacity. I remember Luke one time some years ago sort of closed off the outside world. He stopped watching TV. He stopped reading the news. He stopped all of that stuff to unclutter his life and to be able to focus back into what Jesus was saying. Distractions. That's what the apostles had. They had all these issues, all these problems, all these distractions, but they went back to their original roots. So there are a couple of things that we face individually in this process. One of them is lies. I think most of us have believed certain lies about ourselves somewhere along the way. And I think a lot of the times it's in our conversation with ourselves where we become aware of that. And in doing that, you can generally, a lot of the time you'll find right out in front of those lies are two words. One is always, and the other is never. And we say to ourselves, I always do that wrong. I never get that right. And these are lies we forget in the circumstances of the moment which we elevate above our identity that we're a new creation. We sang about it this morning. Jesus killed all those lies. It's not for us to resurrect them and put them back on like the shroud of a corpse. Our circumstances don't define who we are. Our Savior defines who we are. We have a destiny. We have an identity in Christ. And that's what we need to focus ourselves on when we're worried about North Korea bombing us or the Russians wrecking our election or even the Broncos losing today. 
What? <laughs> Another thing we have to deal with is inconvenience. Sometimes I feel like inconvenience is the first enemy of ministry. You know, I'd really love to help this person, but oh, you look at the time. You know, I don't want to get involved. This person looks like a wreck. <sighs> Been there, done that. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Oh, I'll, I'll get it next week when I have more time. And the enemy, in our own soulish nature, brings us into this place of avoidance and delay and so forth. What if Jesus in the garden would have said, Lord, Father, let this cup pass me by. Thanks. And off he went. Now, where would we be? Fortunately, he's our Savior, and he's true, and he's trustworthy. And the third thing we have to deal with in trying to get through the clutter is persecution. Um, I doubt that many of us here in this society, in this day and age where we live, are on the trail to martyrdom. Okay, I don't think that's probably a destiny that most of us would experience, particularly compared if we were living in a Indonesia or um, Myanmar or someplace like that. But we still get persecuted. When you look at the conversation in the public square, does it make you really want to go out and speak your faith? When we're characterized as being exclusionary because we're not able to accept some values that others may have, when we're criticized, when we express our values that what we're offering is hate speech, does that make us want to go out? When we meet other evangelists, I remember some years ago, we used to go to CU football games, and uh, on the southwest corner of the stadium, there's a buffalo statue. Have any of you seen this? Big, big buffalo statue. And after the game, um, there was a group of well-meaning people <coughs> who captured the buffalo, and there's a guy on the top of the buffalo with a mega, week after week with this megaphone saying, repent, the end of the world is at hand, dot, dot, dot. And I'm watching the offense roll through the people around me. And I had a little bit of it myself. Because this was a call-out kind of evangelism. This was a call-out that says, change your ways, you're wrong, you're going to hell. If you died tonight, do you know where you'd be going? It's that kind of thing. It's very hard for people to accept that. It doesn't invite them into anything. It tries to compel them into change. It doesn't offer internal transformation. It proposes external confirmation. That's what it does for us. So it's hard for us to see persecution for what it really is. Because it's not the kind where the elders summon you and beat you. It's the kind that erodes confidence. We have bad examples of how to call people out. We have this shouting down because our beliefs are hateful or disagreeable. We have to learn to take that persecution and receive it the way Jesus said to receive it. He says, remember, if they hate you, they hated me first. Right? So we have to be able to do that.
And then there's us as a family. I want to talk about that a little bit because we're a family. We're a family. God has called us together. Imagine if you went to Lloyd's of London, big actuarial insurance firm, and you said, I would like you to go one year into the future and calculate the likelihood, the odds of this particular group of people all being in this room at 11.45 Sunday morning, October 22nd. It would be spectacular. One in billions and billions and billions. But God doesn't calculate the odds. He calls his people. And he calls us into being a family. Well, as a family, we're challenged with some uh, distractions as well. One of the distractions is comparison. You see, every um, spiritual community is different. We're called to different things in different places, but it's easy for us to fall into comparison, and comparison is the heart of all discontent. Because if we compare ourselves to, say, another church, uh, and we decide we're doing better, then we're brought into a state of pride. Not only that, but now we've established a bar that we're going to have to try to continue to hit. And we're not looking at Jesus in the center anymore. We're looking at us in the center. That's what we're doing. If we compare and we find ourselves inadequate, then what we do is we immediately say, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? Is it me? Is it our leadership? Is God mad at us? What, what, what? Why do we seem to be inferior? And can you see this is all a lie? This is ridiculous. It really is. And yet we can fall into that, and we need to put that aside. At Vine Life, in this season, we're called to be a missional community. Our call is to equip and send people. We're not in the role of building an audience. We're not trying to get butts in seats. Okay? That's not what we're after at all. We're trying to equip and ascend out into the world, whether it means Africa or whether it means right here. Into the world, people that know and are convinced of the goodness of life in Christ. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do here. So there's a few things that we have to acknowledge as a group. The first thing is uncertainty. Right now we're in this roller coaster of transition. We're moving from an attractional community led by a senior pastor to a missional community led by a group of elders. And that's a difficult transition. Uh, first of all, being one of that group of elders, I think I can safely say that we don't always have all the answers. When the how comes and the what abouts arrive, we don't necessarily know. So that causes uncertainty in us and therefore in everybody else. That's what happens with uncertainty. But we know this, Jesus is not surprised. Jesus isn't wondering what we are going to do. He knows. He knows. And if we'll just trust him, we'll walk through that. And uncertainty will not have a place. Something else we know 
is that we're heading on a direction. The first part of that direction is discipleship. What did Jesus say? He said, go and make disciples. Didn't he say that? Matthew 28, go and make disciples. How can we make a disciple if we're not one? How can we give away something that we don't have? And so the fuel for being on mission, the fuel for expanding the kingdom, the fuel for changing the world is our own discipleship and being a disciple. We want to fan the fires of discipleship here. So to do that, for about a year and a half, we've been in a process that's built around leadership cohorts. The eldership has been there, the senior leadership team has been there, a number of leaders have been there. And one of the key underlying premises of this cohort process is for us to learn how to discern what God is saying to us, individually and collectively. That's a key part. Today I think we have about maybe 40 people that are involved in cohorts right now. It's a year-long commitment. And by the way, if you're here and you haven't been invited to one yet, don't worry. Your invitation's in the mail. It's coming, but we can't do it all at once. We have to build because we're equipping equippers. So we want to fuel the fire, or fan the fuel of discipleship. And the way we're doing that is through cohorts. We need to get this right. We need to get this right. I mean, if we, and we're not going to get it right all the time, but if we can get this right, then we can move ever closer to the destiny that this house is called to and that you're called to because you're part of the house. The second thing is communications. Um, a lot of times from the eldership, we hear questions like, um, what are we doing? Where are we going? Who's in charge? Are we going anywhere? What, what, what? How about, what about, how come? And you know what? We have not always done a good job of communicating. And we want to do a better job. The apostles in Acts gave us a clue when they said it's not right for us to serve these tables. They were open. They were transparent. And we want to be open and transparent as well. So... We're going to start, we're actually going to start this Sunday, and we're going to stay after service for 20 to 30 minutes, and we're just going to sit over in this corner here, and we're just going to have a circle of chairs, this is very informal, and we're going to sit there, and we would like to meet with you. We invite you all to stay, it would be interesting if you all did, but we invite you all to stay, because you know, there are people here that have been in this community for a long time. There are people here that were like the seven that were picked. You look around the room, I see Valerie over here with the kids. Just like those seven, she's one of our deacons. I see Travis here leading worship. Like one of the seven, there are deacons. Throughout this room, there are leaders in ministry. And more than that, throughout this room, there are countless other people that are helping them. You saw the teachers. So one of the things that we want to continue to do is to expand leadership. We need to hear from you if you've been around here for a while. You probably have some great insights. If you're new and you haven't been around here for a while, you probably have some interesting observations. 
I know I've lost my ability after all these years to really understand how we appear to those that, that haven't been part of the community for a while. So come and sit with us. Let's talk. Let's be transparent. And let's hear your hearts. And we'll be happy to share ours as well. And the last thing is about maturity and perspective. We all come from different traditions. One time I was um, meeting with the Lions Club over in Decono, and we were looking at the possibility of using their space as a uh, um, secondary campus and a place for Wellspring to be closer to those that can use their help. And one of the Lions Club board members said, what kind of people go to your church? And I looked at him and I said, there were about 10 of them there. I said, believe me, whatever you are, we got one of you. We got at least one of you. We're very diverse. And when we come into this environment, something that we need to do is we need to put down the perspective of our origins. We need to set that aside and instead ask ourselves, posture our heart, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing here? What am I seeing here? There'll always be conflict in church. I think John Wesley was quoted as saying, uh, when God cast Satan out of heaven, he landed in the choir loft. Because there'll always be disagreement about shades up, shades down. Crossing the side, crossing the middle. Music too loud, music too soft. Too contemporary. You know, that, that will always be there, but we need to have maturity and perspective and understand that the right question isn't should we turn the music down or raise the blinds or lower them or whatever. The right question is, Lord, what are you doing here? What are you doing here and how can I align with that? Because that's where the truth lies and that's where life lies. In the first chapter of Acts, in the first verses, Jesus is asked, well, Lord, is it time for you to restore the kingdom of Israel? After all this, these guys had missed it. After all of this, they were seeing a geopolitical kingdom, not a kingdom of God. And Jesus didn't answer the question. He said something quite different. He said, no, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea, and under the ends of the world. That's what I'm inviting you into. And that's what he invites us into today. Jesus focused them, and he focuses us on a higher vision, a vision to change the world. In Matthew 10, we read this. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the tension of choice, when distractions roll all over us, there's only one thing that we can do, and that is to turn to Jesus. That's the only thing we can do. But when we do that... Everything changes. Out in front of the church here, there's a little grassy knoll, and on that knoll, there's a little tiny white tombstone. It's about so by so. Very small tombstone. And inscribed on it, 
It says, here lies self. I've been there for a very long time. And it calls us all to put down our life and pick up our life in Christ. It means we're living in Jesus. And it means we get to expect, we get this whole adventure forever. Forever. Years ago, we were at a uh, musical called Brigadoon. Have any of you ever seen Brigadoon? Okay, a lot of people have seen Brigadoon. Well, for those who haven't, basically it's a story about a young American gets lost on a moor in Scotland, meets this girl who comes from a different place called Brigadoon, which is invisible to everybody, and the people that live there are immortal, and they fall in love, but she can't be with him because she'll lose her immortality, and he's not welcome. Okay? Briefly. So... This is at a theater, and so there's a point in the story where this young man who's wandering the moors, trying to find this woman he loves, suddenly encounters her and her whole family. And the way they did this was so clever. What they did is they hung a sheer curtain down in front of all of these people that were posed as the family. And they shined a light straight down the face of that curtain. And what that, the effect that had for us in the audience is that it made it opaque. We couldn't see through the curtain at all. And then as they unfolded the story, they dimmed that light that was shining down the face of the curtain, and they brightened up the lights that were shining into the heart of the curtain. And that curtain was opaque, then it shimmered, and then it disappeared. And we saw the family. We saw the truth. Jesus does the same thing for us. When we clear our minds of the clatter, when we ask ourselves, Jesus, what are you doing here? Lord, show me. How can I align with you? Then we turn that light of lie and inconvenience and comparison and all of those things down, and we turn the light of Christ right into our hearts. That's what we do. And when we do that, we don't have a tension of choice anymore. We have a heart posture of surrender and a clear call into our own destiny. Can you go with that? Amen. Let's stand. Well, thank you. Lord, we thank you for this time today. Again, Lord, thank you that you meet us where we need to be met. Thank you, Lord, that your truth does pierce us that it is a two-edged sword, Lord, that we can leave here in deeper relationship with you. We can leave here with deeper understanding on how to go forward, that we can put aside the cares of this world and all of these things that tickle our ears and pierce our hearts, Lord, but rather we can see the truth of you shining into the reality of the truth of us. And everybody said, Amen.